Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Robert Kilpatrick, chair of the club's Health and Medicine member-led forum and chair of this program. Our guest today is uh, Dr. Robert Klitzman, MD, who is a professor of psychiatry at Columbia University Medical College and director of the master's program in bioethics. He has written eight books, and his latest book is called Designing Babies, How Technology is Changing the Ways We Create Children. So without further ado, Dr. Robert Klitzman. I feel like I'm on a high chair like a little child or something here. <laughs> what was the laugh? And was it Rosanna, Rosanna Dana, who was a little child on the big chair? Uh, anyway, thank you all for coming. It's great to see some friends and to uh, meet some new folks here. And thank you, Robbie, for the invitation to the club. Uh, it's really a wonderful institution, and I'm really honored to be here. Uh, I thought I'd talk a little bit about the book, uh, Designing Babies, and then have a chance to have a Q&A with you, because these issues are important issues that, in the end, I think, affect all of us, or will affect all of us. And I'd really be uh, welcome a chance to hear about your thoughts about these issues as well. I wrote this book uh, for a few reasons. I first got interested in this topic a few years ago when a friend of mine a woman I knew from college actually said to me, uh, would you like to be a sperm donor? Uh, I want to have a child. Uh, this is a woman who I'd known for several years. She was single at the time. She had a boyfriend who had dumped her. Uh, she was in her mid-late 30s. Uh, and I hadn't been asked this before. And I said, well, what are you thinking? She said, well, all you'd have to do is give me your sperm. You don't have to be involved with raising the child. I'll take care of everything. I'll pay for everything. I'll make all the decisions. It'll be my child. You'll just give the sperm. And I thought, well, should I do this? Uh, and I thought, on the one hand, I don't have any children myself, myself. I thought this would be nice to have a child. But then it made me a little uneasy. What if we disagreed about what would happen with the child? What if we disagreed about where the child should go to school or anything like that? What would it be like to have this child who's my flesh and blood uh, Period. That would be the only relationship. And so I began to look into this and was aware that this is, of course, something that's changing a lot of our lives, that we uh, there's only three countries in the world where you can buy and sell human eggs, Russia, India, and the United States. So it's an illegal, it's illegal in all the rest of the world. At the same time, I wrote a previous book called Am I My Genes? Confronting Fate and Family Secrets in the Age of Genetic Testing. And in that project, I had funding, I should say, from NIH and from, from foundations for both of these projects. I interviewed people who were at risk of different diseases, such as breast cancer, Huntington's disease, which is a terrible neurological and psychiatric disease uh, that Woody Guthrie, the famous singer-songwriter who wrote This Land is Your Land, This Land is My Land, had. Uh, if I have the disease, Huntington's, uh, it's because I have the mutation, uh, and uh, there is a 50% chance that each of my children will have the mutation. And if you get this mutation, you will die of it in your 40s or 50s if you don't die of something else first. So it's really a death sentence, so to speak. And famously, Arlo Guthrie, the uh, singer-songwriter, also decided he does not want to know if he's at risk. 
So I interviewed people at risk of Huntington's disease, and I thought I would hear about issues of privacy and concerns about discrimination. And instead, what people told me is, you know, I asked them, you know, what's the biggest issue you face? What's it like to have this risk of this disease, to have this mutation? They said, well, the biggest issue I face, several said, is I wonder, should I get married? Should I have kids? Should I adopt? Should I abort? Should I screen fetuses? Should I screen embryos? And if I screen embryos and reject the ones that have my mutation, or if I abort a fetus that has my mutation, what am I saying about my own life? Because I would have been aborted. I would have been screened out as an embryo. So should I do this? I mean, I feel, yes, I know I'm going to die in my 40s or 50s, but I feel I've had a pretty good life. I've enjoyed things I've done. So what should I do? So I got interested in, in uh, and we at Columbia and other places are screening embryos for Huntington's disease, where through IVF, when egg meets sperm, they create a one-cell embryo that divides and becomes two cells, then four cells, then eight, then 16, 32, and eventually each of us. Uh, and when there's a bunch of cells, maybe 60 cells or so, we can take out one or two cells or a few uh, and, and diagnose them. We can say, well, the, this embryo has the gene for Huntington's disease, or this embryo has the gene that gives you an increased risk of breast cancer. And People say, well, I won't use those embryos. I won't use the genes, for the, the embryos with Huntington's disease or breast cancer. We also have clinics now that specialize in giving you a child with the sex of your choice. So people say there are clinics here in California that specialize basically in giving people male children. People go in and say, I just want a boy, and we give them a boy. Often this is people from countries where to have a male is very important, where uh, men will feel, if I don't have a male son to carry on my name. It means I'm not fully a man. There's a problem with that. Um, and so uh, this clearly gets into the realm of eugenics. And the notion of being able to, to affect the genes of your children and your children's children, on the one hand, can help eliminate terrible diseases. If you're at risk of cystic fibrosis or sickle cell or Huntington's or breast cancer, you can screen those genes out so your descendants don't have them. So there's clear, on the one hand, medical advantages, but at the same time, uh, we know where uh, eugenics has led us before. The notion that we're going to perfect the genes of a society led to Nazi Germany, where we decide the Germans decided, or Hitler decided, the Nazis decided, we want to improve the genes of the German race, and so we'll get rid of those bad genes. Uh, so one needs to proceed with great caution. Uh, yet what's interesting is, whereas in Europe, assisted reproductive technologies are very closely regulated. In the U.S., they're not. It's essentially unregulated here. And so it's called the Wild West, uh, in which if you go in and want it and you want to screen an embryo for whatever, doctors will generally do it for you. Uh, we have, as I mentioned, there are only three countries where you can legally buy and sell human eggs. And there are dozens of websites with, with names like eggdonor.com uh, and... Uh, uh, of course, uh, and you go on and you choose the their drop-down menus. You choose the hair color, the eye color, the skin color, the type of hair, the SAT scores, the profession, the religion of the egg. Uh, the prices of eggs go up with your SAT scores. Uh, uh, in doing the interviews, and I should say for the book, I interview doctors and patients all over the country. Uh, some have described patients coming and saying, I only want a Harvard egg. 
And the doctor will say, yes, but the woman you found at Harvard is, you know, that's on the other coast. And for her to fly here, she's going to have to come. doesn't matter. I only want a Harvard egg. Uh, so you can imagine that this, again, begins to smack of eugenics. What are we buying and selling here? Uh, and, of course, eugenics and genetics is tricky business. I'm reminded there was a, a story that was uh, told to me uh, that it was Albert Einstein talking to Marilyn Monroe. It actually was George Bernard Shaw. Uh, got a letter once from a foreign actress who was considered very beautiful. And the letter said, Dear Mr. Shaw, I'd love to have a child with you because if we had a child together, just think, our children would have my looks and your brains. <laughs> and Shaw wrote back and said, Yes, but what if they have my looks and your brains? <laughs> so this is dicey stuff. People may be, there may be things that people are buying that may not be what they're getting. Uh, and of course, this is increasingly important because we now have gene editing technologies, most notably CRISPR, uh, CRISPR-Cas9, and there are the versions of it now, in which we can now uh, take a, uh, uh, go into a cell and alter the genes. This, a lot of work on this actually uh, was done uh, here in the Bay Area, Jennifer Down, et cetera, at Berkeley and elsewhere. Uh, a lot of the early work was done in yogurt, where it was found that yogurt bacteria could clip out the genes of viruses, and people smartly thought, well, maybe we can use this for useful purposes. And of course, it was about uh, 13 months ago, 14 months ago, that Dr. He Zhang Kui uh, in China, in Shenzhen, uh, created children uh, having altered their genes. Uh, it was about three years ago that the Chinese announced that they were now using this technology to alter the genes in embryos, created a big hullabaloo. Uh, it was decided by the major ac academies of medicine around the world, the UK, the US, China, that it was okay to alter the genes in embryos, it was being done, but you just shouldn't put the embryo into the womb to create a child. And part of that is because we don't have the technology perfected yet. If we go in and say, and I should say our genes, we, as you all know, we have uh, uh, a unique sequence of of uh, our DNA. It consists of three billion letters, so to speak, the four molecules that make it. Three billion letters, to give you an example, if this was a wall of books, this would have three billion letters in them. We're about 99.9% .9 the same, which means that if I take out one book, that's the amount by which we differ, right? So there's a huge amount of similarity, almost all similarity, but a little bit of difference. And that, of course, is what gives us the hair color and eye color that we each have. No two of us look exactly the same here. Even identical twins don't look exactly the same. There's epigenetic factors. Uh, but we're now able to go in and alter some of those genes. We can put some genes in. We can take some genes out. Uh, the problem, of course, is that there's still enormous risks when we do this for humans, which is why we don't want to start creating people, even though there are now people created through this. Uh, if it turns out that Dr. He Jong Kui said he was just going to cut out this bit of G DNA, he'd cut out more than that. And, of course... There's a lot about DNA we don't know. When the first human genome was sequenced around 16 years ago, uh, and it was thought at that time that most DNA was in the human genome was junk DNA. We didn't know what it do did, so it must not do anything. Uh, of course, it's not junk. We just don't know what it's doing. Um, but it, it may well be important. Uh, so there are risks involved uh, if, in that we're maybe uh, cutting out more DNA than we want. And of course, the other problem is that the human genome, it turns out, we have about 35,000 genes, uh, which are not that much more than the number of genes in mice, for instance. Uh, and so undoubtedly, any one gene does multiple things. 
It's like saying all the buildings in San Francisco are really only made from 30 ingredients, right? Glass, steel, marble, plastic, wood, whatever, right? There's not that many ingredients. The key thing is when do you say stop putting down the brick and start putting on the glass that make all the differences? So it's a lot of this is instructions. But anyway, so these issues of uh, of um, whether we should be altering the genes of our descendants are decisions that are now being made by hundreds of thousands of people in the United States every year. People are deciding, should they buy eggs? Should they buy sperm? If so, whose? Should they alter? Should they select embryos? If so, uh, on what ground should they select it? And of course, the fact that it's unregulated here in the U.S. Uh, bodes poorly for our future ability to uh, regulate use of CRISPR and other gene editing technologies. In other words, at this point, people do whatever they want, basically. Uh, and even though the FDA says you shouldn't use CRISPR, we already have cases of people uh, doing things that the FDA doesn't like in IVF clinics. Uh, the uh, uh, the reason assisted reproductive technologies is important is because also um, about uh, 10% of all men and 10% of all women are infertile. Uh, they biologically have low sperm counts, have difficulty biologically to having a child. And in addition, there are many women who were fertile when they were 30, 32, and they decided to delay having children in order to pursue their education or work and develop careers, now they're 39, 38, 40, and their fertility has dropped dramatically. So it's much more hard, it's much harder to have a child when you're 39 or 40 than when you're 29 or 30. Uh, and so uh, uh, over 20% of all couples have infertility problems and have pursued some kind of infertility treatment. In addition, you have single women by choice, single men by choice. The woman who I mentioned, my friend, for instance, um, People who say, well, I'm single, but I want to have a child, so I'll buy whatever I need. So you have single men, gay or straight, who say, well, I will uh, buy a woman's egg, go to eggdonor.com or through your doctor. Uh, I will then arrange for a gestational surrogate, uh, hire a woman who will carry the child in her fetus, and in in her, carry the fetus in her womb, etc. Uh, you also have gay couples. You have lesbian couples where gay couples, for instance, have sperm. They don't have eggs. They don't have a womb, so they can arrange... For that, uh, lesbians uh, will, whether in a couple or in uh, um, or single, will um, uh, arrange to buy sperm. Um, so you have uh, a huge industry. It's a multi-billion-dollar industry. Uh, about four percent of all births, about seven percent of all births in Denmark now use IVF. Uh, probably will go up to twelve percent. Probably go up to about twelve percent in this country as well. Obviously, not everyone wants to have a child, but many people do. Uh, so um, I was struck by a few things. And in general, I, as, as Robbie mentioned, I work in bioethics. And bioethics is a field that looks at the fact that our technology is booming. Our technology is revolutioning our, revolutionizing our lives in healthcare, for instance, with big data and AI, but also in, in biological areas, but also electronically. The fact that we all have smartphones and could basically speak to anyone else in the world and access anything ever written in the history of the world. Uh, so technology is changing our lives, uh, but our understanding of the ethical and the legal and the social and the psychological implications of that has lagged behind. So we're constantly playing catch-up, trying to figure out, okay, we have uh, Facebook getting all our information. That's great. You can share information with people, and yet it could lead to 
certain people getting elected president um, uh, and yeah, get information getting hacked, etc. And so people didn't think through what kind of regulations do we need, what kind of safeguards do we need, and we end up where we do. And the same thing is now happening, I would argue, with assisted reproductive technologies, where uh, we have many instances, as I'll talk to and as I talk about in the book, where uh, there are technologies that are widely being used. People are making tons of money off it. Uh, on the one hand, it's helping people have children, but it's not being done in the way that it could be done, the way that it should be done, and there are often too many risks. So on the one hand, in doing the book, I was first struck by the fact that uh, uh, the desire to ha- how strong the desire to have a child is. That for many people, having a child is the most important thing in their lives. People said, you know, I am willing to give my life to have a child. Uh, as illogical, and, and some will say, I realize that doesn't make sense, that's irrational, who would raise a child, but I feel to, to uh, create someone else in the world, I've screwed up my life, uh, or, you know, my life hasn't been great, but a child who can have a whole fresh start, what a wonderful thing that is. And of course, we wouldn't exist as a species, nor would any other species exist, if it wasn't for the strong desire to reproduce. So uh, this is a source of great meaning to people. And so uh, what I found is that among people, particularly heterosexual couples who couldn't have children and wanted children, this was a source of enormous distress. Uh, and people talked about that to have a miscarriage is to have a death in the family. Uh, people said, you know, I feel like I'm just not part of the parent club. That all other women in my group, everyone I went to college with in high school, they're having kids, they're pregnant, they're starting families, and I want that and I can't. Uh, and that is, uh, to me, was extremely moving. Uh, and so people start on this journey of trying to have a child, and then it's harder than one thinks. I should say that adoption has uh, been an option, but it's much harder to adopt the child now than it was in the past. So people I know in my age cohort, uh, I'm 60, many people I know adopted kids from Guatemala or China. Countries no longer want to be sort of exporting babies abroad. It's really not... PC, so to say. And in this country also, it's harder to, partly because abortion has been available, uh, thank God, side comment, uh, there's, there's much less, uh, there are many fewer sort of unwanted babies being born in the world. Uh, and so people who might have considered adoption in the past now try to have a child biologically. Um, and yet um, getting IVF treatment is very difficult. So for one thing that struck me is that among heterosexual couples, Women often have this project, and men would be wary. Many men feel that if they can't have a child, they're not macho. If, they have a, if they're impotent, that's not a good thing. And they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to get treatment for it. They'll often blame their wives or girlfriends for not getting pregnant. Uh, I call this the Henry VIII phenomenon. Uh, if you're having trouble having a child, it's your wife's fault, <laughs> of course, Henry VIII, took that, Henry VIII took that to extremes, but still, every day in America, there are thousands of couples where the man will say, we can't have a child, go to see the doctor. And the woman will say, well, maybe it's something wrong with you. Nothing's wrong with me. You know, it's your fault. It's your problem. You know, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. What are you saying? I'm not macho? Uh, again, this isn't all men, but this is a lot of men. And, and couples often fight about this. So similarly, uh, most IVF cycles do not work. There's about a varies, but for a healthy woman, maybe a 40% chance that one cycle will work. As a woman gets older, mid-late 30s, maybe it's a 25% chance. And so people have to go m- through multiple cycles. Each cycle costs a good $25,000. Uh, and so there's a question of how much is a child worth? 
and couples will fight about this. Some uh, uh, patients told me, you know, we emptied out our entire life savings to have a child. We're now on our third round of IVF. If this doesn't work, I'm not sure what we'll do. Uh, women have told me, you know, I took the money I'd saved to graduate school for graduate school and have used it all on this. I hope it works. Uh, and couples fight. It's often men will say, look, enough already. You know, we, I don't want to take a second mortgage on the house. One couple said they had a big fight because the man said to me, you know, she wants me to sell my motorcycle so she could have a child. You know, I said, screw that. Uh, so again, people have different investments into this project. Um, People start often with taking medications. Often they help alone, but often IVF is then needed. Um, and so there are dilemmas then, uh, first of all, about use of eggs. So um, women, people generally want to use their own eggs, have the child being biologically related to them. Uh, but as I mentioned, the qual- women are, uh, uh, are born with all the eggs they will ever have, essentially all the oocytes, and the quality of that goes down, of the oocytes goes down over time. So it's harder for a woman in her late 30s to use her own eggs. Uh, and then um, there's a question. Should they use a stranger's egg? Should they go to eggdonor.com or talk to their doctor and get a stranger's eggs? And if so, whose eggs? Um, should they go for the Harvard egg? Should they say, if you go down these drop-down menus, there are Jewish eggs, Islamic eggs, Japanese eggs, Chinese eggs. Uh, do you go for uh, beauty or brains, basically? Uh, do you say, I want someone who, uh, for, for sperm donors, uh, you choose the celebrity you most want your child to look like. So you can choose Brad Pitt or Elvis Presley, whomever it is, and they will find the match for you. Uh, God forbid your child doesn't turn out to look like Brad Pitt. You may get very disappointed, mad at the child, etc. cetera. Uh, so many women uh, will continue to want to use their own eggs even when they're 40, 42, and, and the odds of success are n- nil, basically. But women will say, look, I know the odds overall for other 42-year-olds is low, but I'm healthy, I exercise. And there are doctors who, some doctors will say, look, this is really isn't going to work. I, I don't feel uh, that I'm operating good conscience. Continue to take your money for doing something that's futile. Other doctors will say, you want to give me money to keep trying? Sure. Uh, and they may even downplay the low rates of, of possibility of success. Uh, there's a question, how old is too old? Uh, interestingly, the oldest woman ever to give birth gave birth a few months ago. She was 75. She was in India. She used a stranger's eggs. The next day, her 81-year-old husband was had a stroke and was admitted to the ICU. Uh, so there are questions of how old is too old and who should make those decisions. And again, in this country, anything goes. You, there are People, 75-year-olds who are 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds who will say, I want to continue to have a child, and there are doctors who will say yes. Not all, but, but many do. Um, choosing uh, other people's eggs, I should say, as I mentioned with eggdonors.com, it's the real name of an agency, there's also egg-donors.com. These are completely unregulated industries. So anyone here tomorrow could start an egg donor agency or a sperm donor agency, and you have a website, eggdonors.com is unfortunately taken, but I'm sure if you chose, you know, californiaeggdonors.com or whatever, uh, and you basically could put up anyone's pictures you want. Um, uh, they don't have to be real people, it turns out. Um, they don't have to be women who've agreed to sell their eggs, but you're luring people in. Here's a Harvard graduate, beautiful, you know, six foot two, A plus average, captain of her whatever team, lacrosse team, uh, have her information up there. She doesn't have to have said yes. Um, and people will uh, 
sign up, ask for the eggs. Oh, I'm sorry, she's unavailable. Uh, and many women will uh, sell their eggs. Any of you who are on a college campus, if you look in college newspapers, there are ads, sell your eggs, earn twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. And for an 18-year-old, this is a lot of money. Interestingly, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, which is a physician's group of IVF doctors, has come up with guidelines. They say, for instance, that Clinics should not go, uh, should not get women who are 18 to 21 to donate their eggs, to sell their eggs, because they're too young. Really go for women 21 or older. But an 18 to 21 year old's eggs are the best quality. So I did a study with some students. They said they wanted to do a project. I said, let's just look at IVF clinic websites and egg donor websites. It turns out they're all going after 18 to 21 year olds. Um, uh, even though the, or the majority are, even though the reg- the guidelines say, these women are too young to really understand the issues. Part of the problem is that there's, uh, in uh, uh, undergoing the treatment to hyperovulate and produce eggs, you're injected with many uh, uh, IV medications, uh, and there's a risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, where you're literally overstimulating the ovaries. It could lead to death. It could lead to very serious problems. So these women are putting themselves at risk of serious problems, um, and often haven't thought these issues through. To them, twenty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 is a lot of money. Uh, I recently uh, was at a party and met a woman. She asked what I'm doing. I mentioned I've been working on this. She said, oh, I sold my eggs. I said, really? She said, I said, why'd you do that? She said, well, I wanted the money. And I knew her father was a physician. I said, but your father's a doctor. Uh, she, I said, why? She said, well, I want an apartment. I said, but your father's a doctor. Couldn't he buy you an apartment? I wanted a better apartment, she said. <laughs> so... Um, You get the idea. (laughs) This is the real world. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. The prices of eggs. So, um, so I should say again, the, the, it's illegal to sell eggs in any country in the world except for the U.S., India, and Russia. In Europe, it's all uh, against the law. We don't believe in buying and selling human beings. There's concern about commodification, uh, etc. Uh, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine decided it's okay to sell eggs, but just give five thousand dollars, like not too much money. Uh, and um, they said the guidelines said 5,000 is okay, up to 10,000 if there are reasons. Uh, so it turns out they're all giving eight to 10,000, no reasons needed. And then what happened a few years ago, there was a Japanese woman, uh, Lindsay Kamakahi, who wanted to sell her eggs for 50,000. And there was a Japanese couple who wanted to buy her eggs for 50,000. And they were told they can't because ASRM says no. And they went to court saying ASRM is involved in price fixing. And they won. So at this point, there are no longer any price caps or guidelines. And of course, even before then, the prices were, were quite a bit higher. Uh, but there are issues about that. Uh, the, um, there's also issues. A lot of women, uh, just FYI, to avoid having to use a stranger's eggs in the future. And I should say some people will use a sister's eggs or friend's eggs. But a lot of people prefer a stranger's eggs. 
the reason is that if I, if I'm a woman, I have my sister's eggs, use my sister's eggs, problems have come up sometimes because the sisters may disagree, right? So the child will have, the child's aunt will be the child's mother, uh, in part. Uh, and uh, sometimes the aunt uh, who provide the egg will say, well, I don't like the right way you're raising the child. Or, uh, you know, I think you should send the kid to a better school. You shouldn't send the kid to public school or you're pushing the kid too much or whatever the issue is. So a lot of people prefer a stranger's eggs. I should say most egg and sperm donation in this country, the vast majority is anonymous. So another set of problems is coming up because you have, uh, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people created through donor sperm and are now through 20, that where it's anonymous, and now through 23andMe, they're finding out that they have 150 siblings. Uh, uh, there, in fact, was, in, in Great Britain, there's a man who's created 800 children. Uh, he says he now he wants to get to 1,000. Uh, <laughs> but there's no limit on this. You, could, you too can create 800 children if you would like. God bless you. Uh, um, the, uh, uh, what 23andMe has revealed is that uh, often clinics have said to, to men, we're only going to create 10 children or 25, and instead the clinic... Uh, which got your sperm for $75, will be selling it for a few hundred dollars uh, to, you know, dozens and dozens of people creating many, many children. Um, you also have the phenomenon of that there, unfortunately, have been IVF doctors I, who have used their own sperm. There, in fact, is a show on Fox TV at the moment called Almost Family, uh, the premise of which is uh, that there is an IVF doctor who uses his own sperm, creating all kinds of people who then meet. This is the premise of the show. So the opening scene actually was asked to review this for Slate online. So I actually watched this. Um, but the opening scene is a young man in his 20s meets a young woman in her 20s. They meet at a bar. They go have sex. And then they discover, guess what? They're half-siblings, uh, raising issues of incest, etc. So you can see how this also, I should say, plays into issues of the popular imagination. And I should say there's a number of uh, other sort of science fiction and dystopian and other kinds of novels and films out there. There was... Uh, uh, the Handmaid's Tale, for instance, uh, in which women are uh, subjugated to, to um, uh, get pregnant for other people, uh, Never Let Me Go, in which people are uh, created to produce organs for people who need organs, and I'll come to that in a moment. Uh, so this is very much sort of, I think, in the public imagination. And again, I think this is why it's important that we think about these issues. A lot of this is taboo and secret. Most people who are infertile don't want other people to know. People who use a donor's eggs or sperm don't want the kid to know, ever know because they're afraid that if the kid finds out that I'm not really the father biologically uh, or genetically, I should say, or the mother is not genetically the mother, the child will love them less. So they tend not to want the child to know, never tell the child. They um, don't want anyone else to know because they're afraid that the information will leak to the child. And yet I would argue it's important that people know. One is uh, when you see your doctor, it's important that the doctor know your family medical history. Uh, if you have a family history of various conditions, uh, that's important in physicians knowing what diseases you're at increased risk for. So the fact that people don't know that is, I think, a problem. And people also want to know their origins. I think everyone... Uh, my sense is people have an origin story. You know, they were born here. They were born at this hospital. How many people here know what hospital they were born in or where they were born? Right. So I think people have a sense of wanting to know about their past. It's a natural human instinct. Uh, 
so some women, to avoid having to use strangers' eggs, uh, will uh, will freeze their eggs. And this is now a huge multi-billion-dollar business. Many companies here in the Bay Area and elsewhere, Apple, Google, Facebook, will tell young female employees that we will pay to freeze your eggs. Uh, and uh, this can help many people. Unfortunately, it's not guaranteed. So there have been freezers that have broken, where there's a blackout or the freezer breaks and hundreds of thousands of eggs are lost. Uh, it turns out that uh, the number of eggs needed may not be enough. So someone may freeze 20 eggs and to get pregnant, to create enough embryos that are viable, that will get implanted, that lead to a pregnancy, that lead to a live birth, you may need 30 or 40 eggs. Uh, so again, that's often a problem. Uh, and uh, it turns out most, 85% of people never use the eggs they freeze. Uh, so uh, again, you have a... Um, uh, a business being created that can provide some good, but again, it's completely unregulated, uh, gives people at times a false sense of assurance. People may think everything's fine and then get disappointed. So again, I think we just need to, to do things better in many ways. Uh, I mentioned screening embryos, uh, and of course, this could uh, help uh, with preventing diseases. Um, uh, we can screen out breast cancer, but uh, uh, Huntington's disease, etc. But one implication of that is that... Uh, because it costs quite a bit of money, and because, unfortunately, insurance companies, though they're getting better, still tend not to pay for uh, screening embryos, for PGD, even for disease. And so diseases like breast cancer, which now, unfortunately, affect both are equal opportunity diseases, they affect both wealthy and poor people in the future, will increasingly become diseases of poor people. Because wealthy people will be able to screen out the genes that are associated with diseases, these diseases. And I think that's a problem because if there are diseases, unfortunately, that affect poor people more than wealthy people, there may be less money for research, less money for treatment, prevention, etc. Another issue, as I mentioned uh, with uh, Never Let Me Go, are save your siblings. Uh, uh, so we now can, there are uh, people who have a disease where they need uh, uh, blood transfusions or bone marrow transfusions, or they may have a child who needs repeated uh, 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 marrow transfusions or organ donations. And so we can create a child that's an HLA match that is immunologically matched to be able to produce bone marrow for the child or for the parent. So we're creating, some people say, children to be a factory to provide tissue for the child or parent. So um, the ASRM has said, well, it's okay to do this if they would have had a child anyway. But of course, if you ask a parent who has a sick child, who now says, please, we want to do the HLA matching to create another child, well, would you have had a child anyway? Oh, of course you would have had another child anyway. Uh, so again, I think that there is... Uh, really very little attention being done to this because, and I, throughout this, I think one issue is that often the rights of the unborn child are not considered. So the parents will say, well, we want to do this, and we have $50,000, $100,000 to pay the doctor to do this. The doctor will say, great, I'm getting paid to do this. I'll just do it. That's my responsibility. I'm doing what the patient wants. And nowhere in that equation is what will it be like for the child to... Uh, be have to undergo repeated bone marrow donations, for instance. And again, maybe it's okay, maybe it's not, but no one studied this stuff. Uh, and again, this is a, these, these are huge areas that have really been ignored. I think a lot of that's because of the taboo talking about it uh, and people not wanting people to know. Some of us may have been created in this way. Uh, I would venture to guess that we all know people who have had children created in this way. Maybe we know about them. If it's a if it's a gay couple or single child by single mother by choice, obviously there was 
uh, IVF involved uh, or assisted reproductive technologies, but for many other people, it, it remains silent. There are also cases of uh, deaf parents uh, saying we want to create a deaf child and dwarf parents saying we want to create a dwarf child. So parents that have deafness who are deaf who have deafness due to uh, a gene will say, please choose the embryos that have the gene because we're deaf and want to create a deaf child. Uh, and I think this is, again, my concern here is that uh, doctors have said, well, that's what the patient wants, we'll do it. But again, nowhere in this equation or often ignored in the equation is what will the life be like of the child. Now, there obviously these are controversial issues. Many people say, understandably, deafness is not a disability. It's a normal part of a normal range of being. This is not something that should be stigmatized. But again, it's one thing to, to live with, if say that if you're living with a condition or, or various trait, but to impose that trait on someone, I think, ideally should partly be the choice of the person, ideally. I'll talk about a few more issues and then, uh, well, actually, maybe I'll, I'll uh, time is flying. So, um, right. So I just, in terms of implications, I can talk more about some of the specifics, but I think there's a few things that we need to do. One is that the CDC, and there's an organization called the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology. It's part of the professional doctors group. Um, they request that clinics give information, give data about what they're doing. But whether or not a clinic, an IVF doctor, gives information to the CDC is voluntary. It's not mandatory. So increasingly, the amount of non-reporting is going up. Uh, it's not a good sentence, but the amount of non-reporting is going up. So more and more doctors are, are failing to report information. Uh, and I think this is a problem. I think the reporting should be mandatory. We should know what's going on. Um, similarly, interestingly, here in California, it's legal for uh, me to hire a woman who will carry a child in her fetus for me. It's illegal in New York. So in New York, this was raised uh, in the last uh, assembly in June, and the state Senate voted to make this legal. At the last minute, Gloria Steinem, the noted feminist, came out and said this is a terrible bill because it will exploit poor women of color, that poor women of color will be ending up having to carry children for wealthy white people, and there'll be human trafficking that uh, the bill at first did not have any residency requirement in New York State. So you could bring a woman from Ukraine or Peru or Malaysia or wherever to New York and have her carry someone's child. Uh, the bill was defeated and is about to be reintroduced. Uh, I've been in touch with the sponsors of the bill because I think that it, it can be done but needs to be done well. In other words, it turns out... Uh, so I did a literature search as a physician, as an academic. Um, guess how many articles had, have looked at who women are. In other words, Gloria Steinem's statement, this is going to lead to exploitation of um, poor women of color. Guess how many studies have been done of who these women actually are? Right. So there's been one published study that had 15 women in it. And the study did not report who the women are, what their, ethnic, what their ethnicity or race were, how did they feel about the experience. So again, we have no data on this. So is that true? My own sense, anecdotally, it's not true. Um, it's not true for the wrong reason. So doctors often um, screen uh, gestational surrogates and want people who have stable income, et cetera. And unfortunately, they reject a lot of poor people. And I should say, I think they reject a lot of poor people of color uh, because, to be blunt, a lot of white people would not want a person of color carrying their child, which I think is a bad, a wrong reason. Um, but 
Um, so a lot are often middle-class housewives who are happy to earn $100,000 or $80,000 for carrying someone's child. But the problem is we don't know. There's no data on this. So I think the CDC is collecting data on a voluntary basis on certain aspects of IVF. It's not collecting any data on this. Who are the women who are gestational surrogates? What is their ethnicity? What is their age? What is their income? What is their education? Again, zero data. Um, and I think that's easily done. Uh, there are... Uh, uh, I think we should have a registry. I think that there should no longer be a not, this is controversial, but I think that having anonymous egg and sperm donation is going to be increasingly problematic with 23andMe. Uh, it was only a few months ago for the first time that ASRM said that clinics should not just destroy their records of who were the donors, but should keep records. Who knows if they're doing it? But again, I think that's a step in the right direction. Um, and I think that... Uh, uh, with CRISPR also, we're going to need to be very careful in that there are uh, there's no system of global governance. There's no agreement on whether there should be a moratorium, whether it's okay to go ahead with uh, 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 creating children, uh, genetically engineering them. Um, and again, I think part of the problem is people aren't aware of these issues. There's silence about them. And I think that the more we discuss them and are aware of them, the better off we'll all be. So with that, I thought I'd stop and I'd welcome any questions. And again, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Janice Barlow, and I have a couple of questions. Um, one of them is, you know, in, in a legal sense, in divorce and also in adoption, you know, decisions are made based on the best interests of the child. Um, why are there so few protections in place for the children who are conceived of um, from assisted reproductive techniques? And why? You know, why haven't we ratified the, you know, 1989 UN Convention on Children's Rights? The United States hasn't ratified it, and it clearly says in there that children have a right to know who their biological parents are. And I think even more, why hasn't the medical association, why haven't physicians, you know, put more pressure on um, on these uh, IVF clinics um, and the physicians who practice, you know, peer pressure is a very is very effective, um, and the way they are practicing is very different than the way you know most physicians are in terms of writing publications, um, you know, following guidelines from their society. I mean, why why isn't the medical group holding them accountable? Right. Great questions. Thank you. So one, I would say that um, why is the best interest of the child not considered is because the child doesn't exist yet. So the, the child doesn't exist and they're sort of, they're, I think the presence of a child, an innocent child, m reminds us that we need to think about that child's right. So often they're not even, they're not, they're literally not in the picture yet, unfortunately. The failure to ratify the, uh, the, the, the UN resolution, uh, I agree, is a huge problem. Of course, the U.S. is one of the only countries that has not ratified the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, that basically I think all but one other country has ratified. Um, so that's another issue. I agree with you. It's a problem. The reason that there's not more pressure is because of money. So this is an enormously profitable area. So um, the story is that... Um, Partly because the question is, is infertility a disease? So that is up for grabs. A lot of people will say, well, it's not a disease. You live a perfectly healthy life. Other people will say, well, no, I can't have a child. This is a disease. It's 
a separate discussion that would be a whole other discussion. We can have it afterwards. But um, so the story is that a lot of insurance companies don't cover infertility treatment or cover very little. It's beginning to change, particularly companies like Google, Facebook, that have a lot of young female employees and want to keep them will be covering some infertility treatment and, and young male employees who want to have children, et cetera. Um, so it's mostly paid out of pocket. So um, one is venture capital companies and private equity companies have been buying up IVF clinics. Uh, and it's the only area of medicine where there have been disputes in clinics where the younger doctors are complaining, we don't get enough of the profit. Uh, so at least there's been vocal discussion of this. So I think that's partly because insurance is not involved. There is even one less sort of lever of oversight uh, involved. So I think... Um, and and this is all new. So the um, it was 40 years ago the first uh, test tube baby was born. Uh, IVF has really been taking off really in the past few years. It's, it's the amount of, of IVFs going like this. Partly, I should say, infertility is also increasing generally in the population among both men and women for reasons that we don't understand. They may be, you know, pollution, things in the environment, et cetera. So uh, I think these are all factors about why uh, this has not happened. Um the other thing I think, one is it's about sex, which is taboo. Um, there's also some reluctance on the part of some people to take this on as a governmental issue because they're afraid the religious right will get involved. Um, interestingly, I've spoken to the people who started PGD, who started screening embryos. They were terrified that the religious right would shut them down. This is, um, And it turns out, though, that the religious right loves the idea, or, or the, there are people on the right who love the idea that if you can afford better genes, go for it. Uh, in other words, it's sort of a libertarian view that if you can afford to get better genes for your kids, there's nothing wrong with that. That in itself is a problem. But I think these are all complicated issues that are involved. I think I have the money. Yes, yes, go ahead. Uh, two questions. First of all, are you a dad yet, or do we need to get the book to... F- no, I'm not a dad, it? no. I uh, said no. <laughs> and the, uh, the second question, uh, CRISPR is something that seems terrifying. Yeah. And... Um, Obviously, I think uh, Dr. Zhang is now in jail. In yes, China. yes, as of two weeks ago, I think. Three weeks and ago. Um, other countries would similarly prohibit the behavior. But are there any countries in the world where that is not the case or whether it's either unregulated and being pursued or um, is as Wild West as in some respects? Right. Are? So, CRISPR, I, every day I get emails offering me CRISPR kits for $500. You, too, can do CRISPR in your garage. Right, so this is an unregulatable technology. Uh, there, there was a phenomenon of quote three parent babies, where uh, as it's called, which is mitochondrial replacement therapy, which means that ninety nine percent of our DNA is in the nucleus of a cell, but one percent are in um, mitochondria, which is little things in cells, and sometimes there are mutations and people get disease. So we can now, if, if a woman has uh, a mutation in one of the mitochondrial. Uh, these little things in the cell, we can take out the nucleus of her cell that has 99% of the DNA and put it in another woman's egg uh, and take out her nucleus and get it uh, 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 fertilized by the first woman's husband. So we have three parents involved. The FDA said this is illegal, uh, but doctors in this U.S. have been involved. What they do is they send the patient to Mexico where it's done, and then the patient comes back and gets treated here. So um, you have people crossing borders getting all this done. So, for instance, for gay couples, um, it's illegal in France for a gay couple to biologically have a child. It's legal in Belgium. So all these gay 
couples in France go over the border to Belgium and have it done, then come back to France. So you have lots of reproductive travel all over the world. Uh, and so my concern is that even if it's illegal here, and that, and uh, by the way, in China, it appears that at first the Chinese, the, the guy thought, Dr. He Jiangkui thought he would win the Nobel Prize for this. Uh, he hired a PR agent. And at first the Chinese government praised it. Only when the world uh, world opinion came down heavily against him did they take that down, and he was put under house arrest and now is in jail. So I think the Chinese at first thought this is great and then felt they were going to lose face. So this will be happening in some country somewhere sometime soon. Gene editing is sort of called genetic scissors. So he took out more than he thought, and there was no reason for, for him to do what he did. So the story with him, very briefly, is... There were fathers who had HIV and um, who obviously wanted to have a child who did not have HIV. So he went in and in the embryo took out the gene that, would, that helps HIV get into cells. The problem is that gene also prevents influenza virus and West Nile virus and other things from getting into cells. So removing that gene meant HIV wouldn't get in, but other things would get in more likely. Plus... Um, we now can wash sperm to get rid of HIV. So if a man is HIV, we can remove the sperm from the seminal fluid where the HIV is, basically. Um, so he didn't have to do that to have a child, to have these men have a child with that HIV. So there was a lot of risk, no benefit, no clear benefit, additional risks, etc. I mean, he could have done this first with animals and seen doesn't even work. And as I said, he should have taken out this much and he took out that much. Hi, uh, my name is Christina Ren, and I'm a gender counseling graduate student. Great. To make a comment about your question earlier, I actually believe that there was a Russian scientist, which a couple months ago actually announced that he would want to do genetic He wanted to do it, hasn't done it yet. He said he would ask IRB permission, yes. Yeah. Um, but so my question is actually, so you kind of touched on embryo selection based on pre-implantation genetic testing. Yes. Um, I mean, currently it's limited in terms of the uh, testing that's being done. It's mostly for a spectrum of monogenic disorders, single genes. Um, but, uh, you know, recently there is this question about what we might do if we do embryo selection or genetic testing for more complex diseases like diabetes, um, heart disease, basically polygenic risk scores. Right. Um, there's a company that's actually currently doing this commercially. So I'm just curious what your thoughts on that, on that and how we can kind of move forward in a more responsible way uh, in this era of rapid evolution. Right. Thank you. So I think, again, that uh, there needs to be um, – the FDA needs to get involved. I think there needs to be regulation. I think there needs to be an, a sense of oversight. Again, part of the problem there is that – uh, you know, genetics turns out to be much more complicated than anyone thought. So if you look back even a few years ago, there were headlines about scientists discover the cancer gene or the fat gene or the IQ gene. And it turns out that there are many, many genes involved, as you say, for many complex uh, traits. Um, and uh, so one is improving people's education. There's a lot of bad genetic tests that are being marketed. Uh, and part of that is because the FDA has not wanted to get into the business of uh, overseeing, quote, lab-created genetic tests. And so I think it's a huge problem. Um, 
you have, for instance, uh, I was asked by the FDA not long ago to comment on a company that was marketing a genetic test to predict suicidality. So they said, this company, and they had had um, data, it, turned, it was their data, it was one study, that purported, they looked at a group of people, some of whom committed suicide, some of whom did not, and said these people are more likely to have this gene, this is the suicide gene, and we're now going to market a test, and for $500, you can test your patients and see if they will commit suicide. Well, as a few giggles around the room suggest, this is ludicrous, right? That suicide is a very complex you know, illness, and of course, there have also been, as you know, um, uh, if you're looking at 3 billion things, right, if you're going to test people for 3 billion things, if I, I will find a gene that this group of people have that the rest of the room doesn't. I call it the left side of the room gene, <laughs> right? Uh, so if you look at 3 billion things, you will find something. And this is the problem. So there's a lot of naive thinking about this. And I think educating the public, educating genetic counselors, educating docs is important. I did a study, uh, I've published a few studies on levels of understanding of genetics among physicians. So 80% of internists, 80% feel they need more education about genetics, more information about genetic testing, more information about how to interpret genetics, when to order genetics, how to order genetic tests. Uh, and part of this is because it was just, as I said, 16 years ago, the genome was sequenced for the first time. Many of us went to med school. Uh, I'm looking at a fellow medical school classmate who's here. Uh, before that, was the gen genome was sequenced. So genetics was less important. Um, I think part of the problem, honestly, is that there aren't enough people like you. There are not enough genetic counselors, and that is because insurance companies underpay, undercompensate genetic counselors and genetic counseling. Uh, they'll pay maybe $50 for one session or $35, and yet to help someone decide if they want to be tested for Huntington's disease, you need more than 30 minutes. Uh, so I think insurance companies need to change, et cetera. Thank you very much, Dr. Klitzman and the Commonwealth Fund for this very thought-provoking evening. Um, I'm Ann Mongovan. I work in healthcare ethics at Santa Clara University's Markula Center for Applied right. Ethics. And I'm so impressed that this is an interview-informed book. Um, and I'm wondering, um, as you sort of touching on whether there are issues in using something like PGD or different kinds of air artificial techniques for, for allowing fertility, for Stopping disease, uh, disease transmission and then moving towards, um, enhancement, moving towards eugenics. And are there concerns about that spectrum? And I just wonder if, if your informants talk about that because it seems to me one of the difficult things about these infertility treatments is you must make a choice, right? That, you know, maybe, maybe say a heterosexual couple who wish to have Children, but are, are infertile. They might have opened themselves up to the random, the randomness of, of just normal sexual reproduction, but they couldn't. And now they they actually must make these choices about who who they will choose for a donor. And um, so I just wonder if people talk about that, if that's part of people wrestling with that, um, whether that was part of your interviews. Yeah. So people struggle. These are dilemmas that people struggle with what to, to how to decide this you know um and some people make mistakes one woman said you know i i needed a sperm donor i went for iq i chose princeton she said phd my child is very bright but has zero social skills he's basically on the spectrum right and um uh in retrospect i realized that probably was not the right thing to just choosing on that one trait was probably not the right thing uh, so again, technology has, has given us these decisions. 
uh, at, you know, should you use Facebook, right? Should you Google your disease? Should you, whatever, you know, we, we face these decisions. There. Should you scroll down and click I accept, right, every day online? Or do you say, you know, I don't trust that side enough to do whatever with my data. So should I do 20? How many people here have done 23 and me? Okay, so should you do 23 and me? So technology is giving us these choices. And people, the problem is a lot of people haven't thought through the issues. Like, well, I, I thought it was okay. Well, did anyone talk to you about the risks and benefits? No. Did the doctor say what the potential risks and benefits were? No. So again, I think that we need to make help people make as informed decisions as, as we can. I'm almost afraid to ask this question. Everybody's asking these ethical ones, but who's going to make money on all of this? It seems like there's some opportunities for investing. Uh, private equity companies are busy buying up these IVF clinics and uh, genetic testing companies are busy selling genetic tests even when there's not much validity or usefulness to the test in one sentence because I'm told we have one minute left. But the, anyway, the book goes into much more detail about these issues uh, and uh, I'd be happy to answer uh, questions afterwards. I'm Feel Robert please. Kilpatrick, chair of the club's Health and Medicine member-led forum and the chair of this program. We thank Dr. Robert Klitzman for his comments here today. We also thank our audiences here, as well as those listening to the recording. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating more than 117 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Thank you.